Well, good morning, Christ City. This morning in our passage that we are in, in 1 John, John continues teaching the churches in Asia Minor. And like the rest of his letter, he has this overarching twofold aim that he's working at. He wants us to have certainty about what true Christianity is. That's, that's the first part of his aim. And the second part of his aim is that he wants us to have certainty that we are truly and authentically following Jesus as Christians. And throughout this letter, John, he's used these three tests we've talked about a couple of times to help us evaluate our true Christian faithfulness. The tests are these. He's put before us tests of Christian doctrine, what we believe, what we're trusting in in our Christian faith. He's put before us the moral test, how our behavior matches with the behavior of those who are truly following Jesus. And third, he's also been teaching us about this love test in community, how our love for Christ ought to flow outward into true love for others in our communities. And in our text this morning, John begins to look again at the moral test, to look at this idea that there is a way of living that conforms or confirms the legitimacy of our faith, and that there's a way of living that actually denies that we have true faith. But in this section, John, it's something a little bit different. Because in this section, John leans into an analogy or a metaphor. He leans into the analogy of children in relationship to their father. And he does it to get at the heart of what he's saying. Because John knows that in a good and loving home, children love to imitate their father. They love to imitate the things that their father does. And in John's typical binary fashion, he wants us also to realize that there are unique characteristics of God's children that set them apart from the children of this world. So in this text, he's going to show us three characteristics of what it looks like to be a faithful child of God. Our outline for this morning uh, are these three things. God's children abide in Jesus. That's point number one. Point number two, God's children are beloved. And point number three, God's children long for Jesus to return. So we're going to jump in right away, looking at verses 28 to 29. And our first point that God's children abide in Jesus. Look at verses 28 and 29 with me. John writes this. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Christ City, God's children abide in Jesus. But that feels a little abstract, I think, often to us. So what does it mean? What is John driving at? Well, the churches John was writing to, they had this problem. They'd begun listening to teachers who were leading them away from the apostolic teaching about Jesus. And that sounds a bit weird and, and maybe you don't feel familiar with what that means. But all that means is that these teachers were coming and were leading the people in these churches away from the things that John and the other apostles who knew Jesus personally, who had lived with him and witnessed him, who had understood deeply the life that Jesus communicated and, and the way of salvation that is in Jesus, leading away from that true faith into a counterfeit, into something that was false. 
And they'd come along and they denied the apostolic message about Jesus. And John had just warned us about these people in the previous section uh, in the passage that Heath preached on last week. And he called these teachers antichrists. You can look at John uh, 2.23, 1 John 2.23 to see this. John writes, Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. See, this antichrist false teaching about Jesus was compromising the church's relationship with Jesus. That's John's chief concern. It's compromising the church's true relationship and the life they can experience through living with true, authentic faith in Jesus. And all these questions and these confusions were arising in their hearts and their minds on account of the teaching of the false teachers. They're beginning to look away from Jesus and doubts are creeping in and they began trusting in other things, not just in him as the savior who died for their sin and brought them into relationship with God, the father. And in the face of these unfaithful false teachings about Jesus, John calls the church to abide. His abide in Jesus, abide in who I've been teaching you all the while that Jesus is along with the others of this early faith, trusting and living and knowing God, knowing Jesus. Trust this message. Remain in Jesus. Don't turn away. Believe this gospel. Don't turn aside to others. John says, abide. And then he tells us why. Look again at verse 28. Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Christ City, you need to realize that Jesus is coming again. He's returning. And John's concern about this true abiding in the message of the Bible about Jesus It has everything to do with what our meeting with Jesus will be like when he returns. Are we going to meet him as those who have abided in faithfulness according to this message? Or are we going to meet him in a different place, having lived out of relationship with him in an unfaithful way, not having abided with him? You know, I love personally to watch people being welcomed in airports. And I love watching the way that this meeting happens, much like the meeting that John's talking about when Jesus returns and we meet him. And in these meetings, I love to to watch the way that uh, there's incredible joy of these children running into the arms of their grandparents that they haven't seen for all this time. Or maybe a husband and a wife who've been apart for a long time and they meet with this affection and these, these hugs and this joy. The affection of friends embracing who haven't seen one another in years, and they're just so excited to be together again. There's a joy to these meetings as all these people are abiding in one another's love in authentic relationship. They're abiding in one another's love through faithfulness and openness and intimacy that's appropriate to each of these relationships. But do you imagine what the meeting would be like if it was a little bit different? Can you imagine what would happen if maybe that husband had been unfaithful to his wife while she was away? How would that change the meeting? Would their eyes meet? Would he hold her gaze as she looks up into his face? 
Would he feel deeply the shame of not having abided with her? And would he pull away? You see, when Jesus returns, God's children who abide in Jesus will meet him with confidence and with openness of heart. They'll meet him with eyes locked on his eyes with rejoicing because they know him. They've lived with him. They've abided with him through the entirety of their lives here on earth, trusting in his gospel. On the other hand, those who don't will, John says, they'll shrink from him in shame at his coming. We need to realize, though, that John isn't talking just about subjective experiences of shame in this passage. Actually, the way that that this word ought to be translated, I think, best would be a little bit more along the lines of being put to shame. Those who have not abided in relationship with Jesus will experience the objective shame of the judgment of Jesus when he returns. Revelations chapter, Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 to 17, it describes what this will be like. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful And everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come and who can stand? See, John urges us to abide richly in relationship with Jesus, to know him through the word of God. And in verse 29, he makes it clear that abiding in Jesus, abiding richly in him, it's not something that's merely personal and private. It's not just inward, but it's something that will be demonstrated as we live our lives by our actions. Whether we abide in Jesus or not will be seen in our actions. Verse 29 says this, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See, John's talking about the reality of family traits. I'm not sure if you've ever met someone who you've been able to identify uh, who their parents were by their behavior. You're like, oh, I know who you belong to. I've seen, I've seen your parents. I get the family connection. I see what's going on here. Honestly, my family's a little bit strange. And actually, there's times that I'm a little worried that as you watch my kids, you'll gain insight into what happens in our family home. Maybe you'll gain insight into the 6 p.m. dance parties and uh, the dress-up celebrating uh, craziness that happens sometimes. It's a lot of fun. It's a little bit embarrassing. Uh, I hope no videos get passed around in this church. But kids, kids look and behave like their parents. And John knows that. So I want you to look back at verse 29 and follow his logic here. John's saying, if you know God is righteous, then it would make sense that those who practice righteousness are his children because they're behaving like God. God's children bear the family resemblance really well. Grace City, God's children abide in Jesus and their actions back it up. And when Jesus appears, they will run to him with confidence. And to be honest, I want that. I I look forward to this. I want to live my life as a Christian in this deep, authentic relationship, abiding in Jesus in relationship with the Father. I want to live richly in his approval. But Christ City, 
I'm realizing more and more in my life that living unashamedly before God in this world doesn't mean I get to please everybody all the time. And that's hard for me. Living authentically for God means that we will face times in our lives and situations in our lives when we feel the shame from this world. We need to embrace the reality that love for Jesus will mean that there will be times when we will be shamed by this world. After all, Jesus said in John 15 verses 18 to 19, he said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Christ City, when we live our lives like John calls us to, abiding in Jesus by trusting the teaching of the Bible and living and acting as God's children, we are going to be offensive to many people around us. That's hard for me as much as I know it's hard for you. There's a question before us here in this text. What shame will we choose? The shame of experiencing at times the hatred of the world or the shame of one day coming before our Father, of standing in the presence of Jesus when he returns and knowing his judgment, knowing that we've not acted as true children. So this point one that we've been looking at is that God, God's children abide in Jesus. We're going to look at a second characteristic, though, of what uh, it means to be God's children. John's going to show us that God's children are beloved. So I want you to turn with me now to 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, and look at what John writes there. John writes, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Christ City, you need to hear this good news. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, if you trust simply in the good news of the gospel, that when you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all, righteous, from all unrighteousness, you are then God's children. He is not ashamed of you. He is not ashamed of you. This is unbelievably good news for sinners like us because I want to be the first to acknowledge that I have a lot of reasons to be ashamed. A lot of reasons in myself to be ashamed. My life is full of sin that wages war on the goodness of God and the good that he wants for me and for those around me. But I'm not unique. Your life is the same. We both are in this place where our lives are still, even today, full of sin. But God, through the blood of Jesus, he meets us in the midst of our sinfulness as we confess our sin and he washes us clean of that sin. He extravagantly loves us and draws us close because of Jesus. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we, we should be called children of God. And so we are. Look, the way that that I'm most inclined to read a passage of scripture like this is, is to try to adjust a little bit in my heart. And maybe you're doing the same right now. Because the way that I think about the love of God is usually that he welcomes me this far and no farther. And I let my sense of, of my own shame keep me uh, from knowing the sweetness of God's full acceptance of me in the gospel. I think something like this. I think, yeah, sure, I'm a son of God, but I'm kind of this like second or third or maybe fourth level son. 
Like I'm a son that he accepts and gives a little place in the back shed and the really back corner of the property of God. Like I get to be kind of near him and that's great. Actually, I'm really thankful for it, but I don't let the full weight of what the Bible teaches really land on me. But friends, this isn't what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we are sons and daughters who have been forgiven who've been washed clean and brought into the depths of the intimacy of love and relationship with God himself. You aren't in the back shed. Grace City, you aren't in the back shed. God welcomes you home into his family. He welcomes you home in the same way that I welcome my children in the morning when they wake up pounding on my door, carrying their stuffed animals, running into my room and jumping on me in my sleeping state. They're welcome there because they're my children. It's the most intimate recesses of my home. God welcomes you as his children, showering you with every blessing that is within his power to give you. And he is almighty God. You know, one of my favorite parables in the whole Bible is the parable of the prodigal son. And it's my favorite parable, I think, because it's my story. It's my story and it's your story as well. And in this story, there's this younger son who demands his inheritance from this father. He says, I want want my inheritance, dad. I want it now. I want to do what I want with it. And he goes and he takes what he has from his father and he goes and he spends it, the Bible says, in reckless living. We do the same. We take all these blessings from God in our lives and we distort them in our sinfulness. We pursue our sin and our shame. We live however we want to live. We live unworthily, just like this younger son lived unworthily of his father. And we have great reason to be ashamed. And yet the glory of this story is that in the gospel, the father doesn't reject us. The good news of this story is that he welcomes us into his embrace. I want to just read the second half of the story of the prodigal in Luke chapter 15, verses 18 to 24. I want you to hear what the prodigal says. He's in this place where he's considering going back to his father. He's kind of run up against rock bottom. He's broken. He's impoverished. He's got nothing. He's full of guilt and shame over what he's done. And yet in that place, this is what happens. He says, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. He ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned. I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best rope and put put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead And he is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. 
Christ said, God is not ashamed of you. Christ said, the good news about Jesus is that Jesus has willingly and sacrificially borne the weight of your sin and your guilt and your shame and the punishment from God that you deserve for your sin. He's borne all of that upon himself. So you would receive instead of punishment, welcome. Instead of shame, embrace and celebration into the arms of God. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, Christ City, that we should be called children of God. And praise God, so we are. So I have a question. What do we do then in those moments when we feel all of the weight of our shame? What do we do when we feel the shame of our sin just pressing in on us and condemning us and overwhelming us in our Christian lives? I think what we do is we look at this passage that we abide in Jesus. We abide in Jesus by continuing to confess our sin and entrust ourselves to the good news that John keeps communicating to us in this letter. Don't hide your sin, bring it out in the open. Let it be seen for what it is by God and other faithful Christians who remind you of God's love for you in the gospel. And as you confess, remember the good news of the gospel. Remember that God doesn't offer his grace to the best version of you that you try to pass off on him. He offers his grace and his love and his mercy to the real you, who you actually are. He sees you as you are, and he meets you there with astounding, overwhelming love and forgiveness as you turn to him in trust. So when you feel shame, let me encourage you, confess your sin, remember the gospel, and celebrate it. Memorize scriptures that you can recite to yourself in those moments of condemnation. Scriptures like Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm not condemned. I'm beloved as a child of God in Jesus. Remind yourselves of these things. Carry around note cards full of memory verses to to teach yourself the gospel. To speak to your heart in its deepest shame, the truths of Scripture. I want to encourage you to sing songs of praise that proclaim the gospel. I want to encourage you to pray with gratitude because of the gospel, to talk and to worship together with brothers and sisters in Christ about the good and gracious love of your Father. Rejoice in it together. Let it fill up your lives and characterize your actions. Because Christ City, his love in the gospel is the only true antidote to human shame. The love of God in the gospel is the only true antidote to human shame. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. You see, God's children abide in Jesus. God's children are beloved. There's a third characteristic of God's children that we need to look at still. John shows us in our third point that God's children long for Jesus to return. Look at chapter 3, verses 2 to 3 in our last point. John writes this, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. 
Right now, John says we are children of God. Praise God. And when Jesus returns, John says our salvation will be made complete. He said we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. He's saying that we will one day reach full maturity as the children of God. See, what's going on in our Christian lives is that when we become Christians, we're born again into a new humanity. But we're born into that new humanity in Jesus as infants. And as we grow, we're well aware that growing up into Jesus is hard. It's difficult. There's this new reality of life of the Holy Spirit that is at work in me, but I'm still full of sin and death in my human flesh. There's a battle raging. And it's hard to grow and to mature in this life. But when Jesus returns, the good news that we're talking about in this verse is that we will finally and instantly be fully mature in him. Physically and spiritually mature in Jesus. We'll be like him, John says. Sin will be gone. These bodies that get sick and die will be transformed to be exactly like Jesus' resurrection, glorious body, and will be fully mature new creations in Jesus. In Christ City, I long for this. I look forward to this day. And I long for it not because I know exactly what all of it means. I don't have some diagram in the back room of my house where I've worked out exactly all the ways that I'll be like Jesus and what that will be like. I don't know that. But I long for it because I long more and more and more for more and more and more of Jesus. I long for him to fill me up completely. I long to grow in maturity in him. I've come to know him by his spirit in my Christian life and I anticipate a day when I will know him fully. It causes me in this life to experience a sort of homesickness for what I'm created for. That fullness of knowing Jesus. In my life, the most most homesick I have ever been, uh, I think so far, was when... My son was only a few months old and I was away on this trip with the church, serving another church. We were gone and the work was good. I was excited about the trip. Um, But as the days progressed, I found myself just being full of this longing to be with my son and my wife. I missed home. I couldn't wait to be back with my wife and son holding them. But the longing of God's children for the coming of Jesus is far greater even than that. Because we live in relationship with God and delight in his love. But the more we grow up in him as Christians, the more we long for the day when he will return. In Christ City, I'm not a prophet, but let me make a prediction here. The closer you walk with God on earth, the more you confess your sin, delight in his grace, live trustingly and obediently and boldly for him, suffering for him in this city, the more homesick you will become. The more you will long for his return, the more you will pray for it. And you'll live your life standing at the welcome gate of eternity's airport, gazing off into the horizon, anticipating Jesus' return. And John says that that hopeful, longing posture will change you. Look what he says. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Why does it change us? 
It changes us because abiding in the love of a relationship and richly anticipating the return of someone that you love, it affects your hearts. It controls your actions in the present. It focuses your perspective because you know what you are living for. You know who you are living for. It makes you more and more faithful and more fruitful. So Christ City, in conclusion, I want to ask you a question. I want to leave you with a question. Who do you love? Who are you longing for? What causes your heart to pound with anticipation? Are you abiding in Jesus' love as beloved children of God? Is his gospel at work in you causing you to produce good fruit in your life? Will you grow and live for him in this world? If you were to return this afternoon, would you run to him in confidence in the gospel? Would you run to him without shame, knowing that his blood cleanses you from all sin? Gazing into his eyes, anticipating his embrace. Or would you be exposed? Would you be filled with shame? Chris City, Jesus offers us true flourishing life and John wants us to beware of counterfeits. He wants us to know the true life of true children of God. Won't you this morning join me in repentance and believing the truth of the gospel yet again, trusting in Jesus and committing our lives to live for him this week? Won't you pray with me? Oh, Father, we confess that we have so much need of your grace. And we want to worship you with thanksgiving that we have it in the gospel. In the gospel, you see us for who you really are and meet us there with love and affection and grace. Would you cause us to have our eyes fixed on Jesus, that we would long for his return? Would you change us and transform us as we hope in him to be more and more full of his life as we live our lives for your glory here in Vancouver in Jesus' name. Amen.